All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're studying the life of David. We're going to look at all of 2 Samuel chapter 11 today. The topic we're going to find there, David watches Bathsheba bathing, then summons her to the palace and commits adultery. The title of our message, she came in through his bathroom watching. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, We tremble at your presence, Lord, and are excited about what you want to show us and share with us from your word. We know, Lord, that it is you speaking to us so that we might know you more, receive your grace, understand your mercy, be people that walk in forgiveness towards others. Share your life and love with others, Lord, believers and non-believers. Lord, I pray for those of us who are believers, we'd be greatly encouraged today, refreshed in our walk with you, that things that we already know would be uh, enhanced in our understanding, that when we leave this place, we'd be closer to you and have a greater victory over sin than when we first came in. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, they're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Lord, from the time they stepped on campus through the music and all the fellowship and now in your word, we pray that you would be drawing them by your Holy Spirit, convicting them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come, revealing to them, Lord, that you died and rose again and are alive forevermore to set them free from sin and fill their hearts with the wonder of your love and grace. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agree said, Amen. Inigo Montoya says he's dead. He can't talk. To which Miracle Max responds, Woo-hoo-hoo, look who knows so much. It just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between being mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. (laughs) Thus has the phrase mostly dead made its way from the cult classic movie, The Princess Bride, into popular culture. I'm going to suggest that with regard to Bathsheba, David was mostly dead. He was mostly dead to sin when he ought to have been all dead to it. The Bible tells Christians we are to, and I quote, reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a passage in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Earlier in that same passage, the Apostle Paul describes Christians. He says, we have been crucified, died, and were buried with regard to sin. When Jesus died on the cross, spiritually speaking, we died with him with the result that we no longer need to yield ourselves to sinful impulses any more than a dead man would. Though dead to sin, we may yet freely choose to let it rule over us because we find as born-again Christians we still have a body of flesh to contend with. Right after being told to reckon ourselves dead to sin, we read in Romans 6, 12, and 13, Therefore... 
Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And don't present your members or your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. And so it's a choice that we have to make, but it's an either or choice. Either we are all dead to sin or we are only mostly dead. David chose badly. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, get beyond being mostly dead to sin. And number two, get into being all dead to sin. Let's take a look first of all in verses one through six. Get beyond being mostly dead to sin. In the book of Deuteronomy, God gave the kings of Israel three directives. Deuteronomy chapter 17 It's a portion of verses 16 and 17. It reads like this. But the king shall not multiply horses for himself, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. With regard to horses, the idea seems to be that the Lord did not want the king to trust in military equipment, but rather to trust in the Lord for victory. David understood this, and that's why in chapter 8, when David defeated Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, he hamstrung all of the chariot horses he had captured, which would render them useless for a future battle. He didn't want the glory to go to the horses or the instruments of war. He didn't want that power. He wanted the glory to go to the Lord. Now, with regard to silver and gold, David dedicated much, probably most or all of his personal wealth to the building of the future temple by his son Solomon. David had this desire to build the temple. God said, you're not going to build it. You're a man of war. Your hands are bloody. Your son will build it. Not to be too discouraged, David said, okay, I can't build it, but I can save towards it. I can uh, accrue wealth towards it. And he put hundreds of millions of dollars into the fund uh, to build the temple so that when he died and Solomon was king, he could start immediately on the project. And so neither power nor possessions were a problem for David. He didn't sin in those areas. He was dead to their temptation, yielding himself instead to God. With regard to wives, well, now that was another thing altogether. Before David was king, he was married to Michael, Saul's daughter. While a fugitive from Saul, we read that David took Abigail, the wife of Nabal, to be his wife, and that he also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so the Bible says both of them were his wives. After Saul's death, he was made king over the southern kingdom of Judah, He had sons born to him by no less than four additional wives who are named in the text. That's a whole lot of wives, but David wasn't done. When David conquered Jerusalem and united the nation, we read in 2 Samuel 5.13, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. David was dead to power and possessions, but not to his passions. He took a second wife, a third, then he had six wives, then he began to multiply wives along with their maids. He had become so used to feeding his passion for wives that one day he took not just another wife, he took another man's wife. Two out of three might make you successful elsewhere, but not when it comes to sin. 
David was therefore only mostly dead to sin, and this became his undoing. And so let's watch it as it unfolds. Verse 1, it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Uh, At both ends of that verse, the Holy Spirit lets you know that David ought to have been out with the army. He ought to have been leading the fight. And, of course, uh, very simply, had he been, none of what follows would have happened. He wouldn't have been on his roof. He wouldn't have seen Bathsheba. He wouldn't have committed adultery. Uh, it, it, It would have changed Uh, a lot of the future history of David. Now, I'm sure David had a few good reasons for sitting this one out. And so can we always think of one reason or another why we can't be about the business of serving the Lord or even sometimes spending time with the Lord. But if we're not careful, soon it becomes a pattern, it becomes a habit, and we act like retired kings who require the luxuries of the palace rather than soldiers who are happy with rations and camaraderie on the front lines. Verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now you might sometimes read or hear that Bathsheba shares some of the blame for this incident. That's like blaming a woman when she gets raped. That is not the case here. This is all on David. We're going to see something about Bathsheba's bath in just a minute that puts this into perspective. But uh, this is David's fault. This is David's sin. He's the king. He's a man of incredible power. And, uh, uh, you know, all of that. He's going to send for her. She's probably a very young girl. Uh, There's nothing in this story that indicates Bathsheba is to blame. Verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Kudos to this servant, whoever it was, who I think put their life on the line and stepped out and said, David, this is the daughter of one of your servants. This is the wife of one of your soldiers. You can any, in any clearer way say, I know what you're thinking. Get those thoughts out of your head right now. This is not for you. Uh, And I'm telling you, this took a lot of courage. It always takes courage to exhort or to tell the truth uh, to somebody, especially somebody that's over us, but even just a friend. Uh, You know, sometimes it's just really hard to, to go to that person. You know, friendships, it seems like, are easily formed today. I see people who they meet each other and 10 minutes later they're BFF. You know, this is my BFF. How long have you known each other? Ten minutes. And then, you know, they're BFF for 20 minutes. And then there's, uh, you know, and then that, what happened? Oh, that fell apart. You know, and so, and so friendship isn't always, you know, it's not, it's, it can be pretty shallow. Uh, and so we need to get beyond that and think, hey, I'm going to be the friend that God wants me to be. If I see that you're messing up, I have to tell you, and if you don't want to be my friend anymore then that's just the way it is because you don't want a friend that wouldn't tell you that because there's going to come a time if you're walking with the Lord then you come back and say why didn't you tell me why didn't you warn me Uh, whether you would have heeded it or not that's another story but we need to be good friends to each other godly friends and so kudos as I said to this individual who said David this is a married woman 
and, and this shouldn't be done. No mistaking, she was married. David's passions, however, were so dominant that he didn't even heed this direct warning. Verse 4, Then David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house. Oh, okay. Bathsheba was taking a bath for purification under Jewish law. As I understand it, after a woman's menstrual cycle, she was required to undergo a ritual bathing. She therefore may even have been attended by another woman or several women. And since it was the season for kings to be gone to war, there was a reasonable expectation of privacy for her rooftop ritual. The Jews did a lot of things on their rooftop. Even today, their houses have rooftop patios and all. And um, so she's there and it's like, hey, I've got to take my bath. Uh, it's, you know, it's at night. Nobody's going to be around. The king is gone. The palace is quiet. Uh, and so let's do this. Verse 5, And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I'm with child. How did things ever get that far? Well, they got that far because David allowed himself the indulgence in one area of his life that was totally inappropriate. He obeyed in the area of horses. He obeyed in the area of money. It didn't cancel out his disobedience with regard to wives. Now, though we don't sometimes um, actually say this, I think there's part of our human nature, the part that is given to religion and trying to do good works. We think as long as I do more good things than bad things, I'm going to be okay. Uh, you know, and so as long as the scales are, are, you know, weighed out over here. And so if you're David, you think, well, you know, I'm not multiplying horses to myself and I'm not multiplying wealth to myself, but I've got this problem. I love the ladies. Uh, and so, you know, I know Deuteronomy says I shouldn't multiply wives, but all the other kings are multiplying wives. And so, you know, I'll just kind of keep this in check. I, I know it's not right, but how wrong is it really if other kings are doing it? But that kind of slide, uh, it's like a slippery slope. And then one day David wakes up and he says, so what? It's another man's wife. What do I care about that? I'm the king. I can do whatever I want because he's used to sinning in that area of his life. By the way, it was perfectly normal for kings to have harems. In fact, uh, you know, that was if you went to king conventions, I guess. I don't know if they had such things, but you, some of you go to conventions uh, or conferences or whatever they're called. And, and everybody, you know, whatever you're involved with, uh, everybody has a way of trying to see who's the most successful. If you go to a pastor's conference, people want to know how big is your church? How many people come to your church? You know, if you go to another kind of conference, there's always some measurement that puts people in sort of a pecking order. So if David ever went to a king's conference, one of the things is, well, how many, how many wives do you have and how many concubines? Oh, I don't know, I have about 1,500. Whoa, I've only got 1,000, but I'm, you know, building up. David, how many, how many wives and concubines do you have? And the answer for a king of, Jude, of, of Israel was one wife. Well, man, that's... <laughs> Can't handle the ladies, huh, David? You know, I mean, and you know, this, it sounds funny, but that's the way the world is. And so you sit there and you think, well, yeah, there, there's nothing wrong. I know God says, you know, not to do it, but how wrong can it be? 
And then you start looking at the Old Testament saints. Oh, you know, these guys, you know, Abraham had Hagar. That didn't work out too well, but at least he had her. And, and then some of these guys had multiple wives. And, and it's easy to justify, you know, the, what you know you're not supposed to do. And you say, well, everybody else is doing it. I want to be a king like everybody else. I want to show, you know, God, I want to show you how, I want to show the world. In fact, I'm going to have more wives than anybody else. No, the whole idea is God says, I want you to show how different you are and what our relationship is like. And so I want you to go to a king's conference and say, I have one wife and I love her. And, and I, we follow the pattern set out by God in, in the Garden of Eden. One man, one woman for life. It's, it's fantastic. You, you need to get in on this. Because there's a depth to it uh, that is incredible. And, so, and that's what God wants. He wants separation. And so when we talk about being separate from the world and not doing the things of the world, it's because what God is offering us is better. And what He wants to show others is that this is the way to go. What you're doing, everybody, the whole idea is, yeah, yeah, everybody's doing that. Who wants to do what everybody does? You ever see little groups of people walking along and they all dress exactly the same way? Who wants to do that? I mean, you know, it's, it's just weird, these cultural things that happen. We want to remain separate from the surrounding culture, and especially with regards to our morality. Now, this passage in Romans that we've cited as our New Testament principle, in one place says this, Don't you know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. David is as good an illustration of this spiritual principle as any you'll find in the Word of God. In fact, it is so simple uh, that you wonder if it can be that simple. Now, a little bit of background. We know from a previous passage that David could see God's tabernacle from his palace because one day he was... There in the palace, he looked out, he saw the tabernacle, and he says to Nathan, God's still dwelling in the tent from the wilderness, and here I am in my palace, let's build God a house. And you know how that story went, Nathan says yes, then God tells him to go tell David, no, you're not going to build the house, your son will build it, and all. But the idea is that David could look out the window, off the roof as it were, he could see the tabernacle. And so... He could look at the tabernacle, he could look at God, as it were, or he could look over at a woman bathing, he could look at pornography, as it were. He had those two choices that night on his roof. I can look this way and see God in his glory where his physical presence dwelt among the people. Or I can look over here and keep looking at this woman taking a bath. It was a clear choice he could make to yield his body to God or to sin. And so that's what Romans is talking about. It says you're dead to sin. But you have a choice to make. You're looking this way. Over here is sin. Over here is God. Which way are you going to turn your head? Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are dead to sin, but we always have a choice to make in every situation. Will we look to God as David could have? Or will we look at sin as David did? Now I'm not saying that there isn't a struggle that we might even sometimes call it an addiction in certain situations, but it really boils down to David making that decision. 
No one was twisting his arm. Uh, there, was, there was no compelling reason for him to look the way he did except that he had fed his own passions for so long that he wasn't even thinking about looking over at the Lord. And so, let's get into being all dead to sin. That's the point of the rest of the chapter. In contrast to David is Uriah the Hittite. He's the honorable husband of Bathsheba. Verse 6, Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And Uriah came to him, and David asked how Joab was doing. How are the people doing? How is the war prospering? David had become an observer. He was content to let others fight. And so he calls Uriah out of the fight and, and he just says, oh, how, how are things going out there? What's happening out there? Remember, David ought to have been out there. And, and so just the quick exhortation to us is to get in the fight or stay in the fight. Be serving the Lord. Verse 8, and David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. In other words, enjoy the hospitality of your house. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and he did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David slept with another man's wife. Uriah wouldn't even sleep with his own wife on this occasion. Now, there was nothing unlawful about doing so, but in this particular situation, he felt it would be inappropriate. Uriah had what we might call a ministry mindset. He represents the attitude that worshiping God and serving God are 24-7 activities. Even when I'm not on the front lines, when it's not my turn on the schedule, as it were, I'm to maintain the mindset of a servant. After all, I'm dead to sin, so I'm always alive to God and to His promptings. And sometimes I'm going to find that even lawful things, even things I can do, and there's nothing wrong with them at all, I have to abstain from because of a particular situation. And so, you know, as I understand it, it's kind of interesting. Uh, several times in the Old Testament, it talks about the time that people went out to war. It was the time when kings go out to war or the season. And so it seems like they had, you know, seasons. Uh, and so during the off season, they would sharpen their weapons and they would plant their crops and they would sleep with their wives and they would raise their families. And then the season would start to heat. It was kind of like, you know, you guys and gals in the military getting ready for these detachments where, yeah, okay, all right, now it all starts up again. I've got a short debt coming up and then a little bit of a longer debt and then, a, you know, the, and then pretty soon I, I'm out on the ship for six, eight months, a year, depending on my deployment. And so that's the, the mindset that these guys had. And so when they were on shore duty, as it were, they, they dealt with different things. And then they started to build up towards the war. And now Uriah, he was all about killing people and, and being with his fellow soldiers and maintaining that discipline. He, he, you know, he had to keep the low-carb diet or whatever was going on you know, to keep himself sharp because you, know, you could get killed out there in the war. 
The last thing you wanted to do is go back and, and weaken yourself in some way by having a, a weekend pass when everybody was out there dodging arrows and spears. And so this guy was dialed in. There was nothing wrong with what David wanted him to do. Perfectly lawful. It just wasn't the right time to be indulging himself in those things. And that's, that's the attitude that we want to have. We want to be dead to sin so that I'm alive to God and even in areas where I might indulge myself, I, I, I'm, just going to, I'm just going to press on here because I might have an opportunity to serve the Lord. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, wait here today also and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. So David needs a couple of days to figure out what he's going to do. His big plan to make his, you know, his baby look like Uriah's child isn't going to work. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he still did not go down to his house. Uriah couldn't really refuse the food and drink of his king. He's not so much being worn down as he is just, he's trying to walk that fine line between obedience and and honor. But he still maintains control of himself. Often we get tripped up because of things that are lawful for us to partake of. They can become dominant and then get in the way of our being able to minister to others. Worse yet, we can begin to promote them in such a way that we even stumble others. Our, our, we kind of get identified with a certain behavior that isn't really, it's not Christ-like, it's not sinful, it's just out there, uh, and it hurts our ability to minister to people. Not Uriah. And so let's follow his example and keep all of our activities in a proper perspective. I mean... The truth is, as a Christian, you live for the future. You're, you live backwards from the future you know that God has for you. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I am, uh, I'm going to bring you to be with me. So he's building you a mansion. It's going to be filled with everything you ever really could want. In fact, you don't even know what's going to be there because you don't even know what you want. Uh, You've got a glorious eternity. We're promised an inheritance that's safe for us. On top of that, there are rewards. And so if we have to give up some things this side of eternity, there'll be a greater gain on the other side. And so, uh, you know, we can, yeah, I really want to get into this. I want to do this, but it'll take too much time away from serving the Lord. It might hinder my witness with others. Why don't I just put that on hold and just go ahead and serve the Lord and let the Lord make that up to me? So verse 14, in the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell And Uriah the Hittite died also. Now it's bad enough Uriah was killed. Others were killed along with him. And this is just a reminder that when I sin, uh, even though I think it's in secret, it has a way of finding me out and affecting others. Uriah could be trusted to carry unopened the letter to his commander that included the instructions for his own death. Now it wasn't because he was stupid It wasn't because he was an idiot. 
it was because he was a man of absolute discipline and integrity. And David, David knew, I can write a letter that says, I want Uriah dead and give it to him and he will bring it unopened to Joab because that's the kind of guy I'm dealing with. And you know what? It, isn't it hard to think that David isn't looking in some kind of a crazy mirror and wondering what happened to him? Uh, don't you, if you're David, don't you look at that and think, am I really doing this? Am I really sending w- one of my best soldiers to his death to be murdered, to hide my sin? What happened to the young boy who killed Goliath? And, and we look at a moment like that and then we realize, oh, I know what happened way back when David started adding wives to his life when God had directed him not to, and because he got away with it, he ended up at a bad place. He was mostly dead to sin, but not all dead. Uh, this carrying about this letter reminds me of a passage in Second Corinthians chapter 4 where we read this. Paul writes and he says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And so he pictures Christians in a kind of warfare, in a kind of battle. And then he says, 2 Corinthians 4.10, Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. In other words, he says, we're in this battle but we're dying to self to live for Christ. And so we also carry our own death certificates by reckoning ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. We are to obey Him, to submit to Him, to yield our bodies to Him, considering ourselves dead to sin. Verse 18, Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Wasn't the woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And so... You know, Joab says, you know, David, he's not really thinking clearly. He's going to hear that this happened and he's going to say, you know, this is basic military strategy. You don't go right to the walls so that they can, you know, throw stuff down on you. Joab, what are you thinking? What kind of commander are you? And, and, but what, what Joab understands It's pretty insightful. He understands that from the rest and relaxation and indulgence of the palace that David would criticize his tactics when, in fact, it was David who had put everything in motion. And so Joab knows, he says, the only way for me to pull this off is to put a lot of people in danger. It's to do something I would never do. And that is assault the city right up to the wall and put men in danger. Uh, And so when David realizes this and thinks, I'm an idiot then you remind him that Uriah the Hittite died. And so David, even though he had put this in motion, he was going to be critical of Joab. And it tells us that it's easy for us to criticize or to have a critical spirit. Part of being all dead to sin 
is to always look first for a log in my own eye before I start to look for a speck in someone else's eye. The truth is, sometimes ministry is stymied or held back by armchair servants like David. They withhold their time and their talent and their money from the Lord, and then they wonder why things aren't more productive. All the while, those in the fight are doing everything they can, but they're getting slaughtered because they don't have the help and the resources that they need. Verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us, came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archer shot from the wall at your servants and some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. Oh well, soldiers die in battle. Never mind that David had him murdered and used the battle to cover it. This was his justification. Maybe Uriah would have died anyway. So maybe I didn't murder him. You know, if... It's scary how we justify our sin, every one of us, when we get caught up in this. I have a favorite episode, I love to bring it up because it just it blows my mind. But it, it's when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, he's receiving the Ten Commandments, and down in the valley below, the children of Israel are getting restless. They, they're not used to being without a god or some kind of gods. Uh, you know, it's, it's just part of their culture, and they don't know much about... Uh, you know, the God of Israel yet. And so they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they said, look, we don't know what's going on with Moses. He's been gone for a long time. Who knows? Uh, we need to have a God. Uh, and so Mo- uh, Aaron says, well, bring me all your gold. And he melts it down and he fashions it into the golden calf. And they say, right on. I remember that. The golden calf. Let's have a drunken orgy. And so they do. And Moses comes back down and he finally confronts Aaron and he says, what is it you have done? And Aaron says, I I threw some gold into the fire and this golden calf came out. (laughs) Not exactly. Not exactly. But, you know, every time that I find myself in sin, that's kind of my first approach. It's like, well, I just I don't know what happened. I just this just happened. Uh, You know, it never just happens. Uh, and so David says, well, you know, people die. Uriah died. Notwithstanding, I had him murdered. Verse 26, when the, wife of Uriah, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so David put on this facade, but... Of this period in his life, he would later admit in Psalm 32, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. We might say that since David was alive to sin, he was really dead toward God. He could not enjoy the fellowship with God for which he was created. Uriah was dead, but that's the point. In one sense, he was already dead before he ever came to David. He was dead to sin, all the way dead, and he carried himself in such a way as to inspire others in their serving the Lord. There was nothing you could do to a guy like Uriah except kill him because he was dead to sin. 
You weren't going to get him into a situation where you were going to be able to cover the sin you had committed. And that's the picture of the Christian. We're dead to sin. And so if you're going to deal with us, you're going to have to deal with us harshly. You're going to have to persecute us. You're going to have to martyr us to get us to deny the Lord. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This word reckon is not one we use too often, or when we do, we think it's something Jed Clampett might say to Jethro. I reckon, like I suppose so, or maybe. But in reality, this word reckon is far more confident and rich. It means to make a calculation, to rely with confident expectancy, and to take into account. Those are three of its meanings. Here's how we would put those together uh, in our text today. When faced with a clear choice to sin or to not sin, you are to take into account that you are dead to sin, make a calculation as to the alternatives and the consequences, then rely with confident expectation that God's power is sufficient for you to turn away from sin. That's what it means to reckon. And so David on the rooftop, he should have taken into account, I am dead to sin. If I look over at Bathsheba, there are going to be severe and bad consequences. And so I want the alternative and I can confidently expect that God's power will help me to turn away. In fact, in his case, he could look right over and see the dwelling place of God. Now, God does not command you to become dead indeed to sin by any means of your own. This, I think, is where it really gets interesting because when we think about these areas of sin and what we would call addictions and things like that, again, not to take anything away from the struggle or from the pull that they have, but our first inclination is, I have to do a bunch of things to overcome this. I, I'm so deep into it, I need tons of discipline, and I need all of this, I need to go here, do that. There's a million things I need to do, and along the way I'm going to stumble and fall because I, I, you know, I just have to get to that place where I'm a spiritual strong man. But God never commands you to be dead to sin. It isn't something you can achieve through discipline. God tells you in Romans, Christian, you are dead to sin. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. If you're in Jesus, you died on the cross. You rose from the dead. You are dead to sin. And then he commands you to act appropriately, or we would say act by faith. And so I don't confront a situation and say, I'm just not strong enough to overcome this. In a week I will be, in two weeks I will be, in a month I will be. No, God says, you're dead to it right now. I command you to believe me and to turn away. God crucified your sin nature on the cross. Uh, this is interesting. It's not, it's not original to me, but I've read this before, and maybe you have too. Crucifixion is one form of death you can't accomplish on your own. You can't crucify yourself. You can only get so far and then you run out of hands. Uh, and, and that's the point. God says, you, what I did for you, only I can do for you. You can't crucify yourself, but I can do it and I did it on the cross. And then through a living personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you then live by faith and act on the fact that sin need no longer reign and have dominion over you. And so, 
Get beyond being mostly dead to sin. Get into being all dead to sin. And really what it comes down to, I know it's it's in one sense more complex, more of a struggle than this, but the way the Bible is picturing it for us today, and I, I hope it will set some of us free from the sin that so easily entangles us, David is on the roof. He's a man of mad passion. He, he, he loves wives and multiplying wives, but nevertheless, whatever was going on, he still at that moment has that one decision to make. I look over here, there's a woman bathing. If I look over here, there's God in all his glory. Which way am I going to look? And it comes down to that choice at that moment and whether or not I believe that my sin nature has been crucified with Christ or whether I begin to justify, say, well, after all, I'm weak, and who, who wouldn't look over here? After all, she's beautiful. Or it's this, or it's that, whatever our particular sin would be. Just remember David. Remember the consequences, if nothing else. And believe and reckon that you can make the right choice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these things. I appreciate, Lord, that you give us principles in the New Testament that are fleshed out, really, and exampled for us in the Old. And, uh, Lord, uh, in a sense, I, I don't want to oversimplify this, but you do. You just There's David, and whatever's going on in his heart, he could have easily looked the other way. And each of us believes that. We believe that of David. We think, David, go to battle. Get to war. Fight. Die, if necessary, in battle, but don't stay back at the palace. And if you're on the roof in the middle of the night, don't look over at a woman bathing. It all seems so simple unless we're the ones caught up in it, and then we make it so complex. We throw our gold into the fire and calves come out, as it were. And I pray, Lord, that you would set us free from that way of thinking, that we would reckon our old man, our old nature, ourselves dead to sin and alive to you. And maybe from this moment forward, Lord, Uh, The things that have so easily beset us, we would turn away from them once and for all by making daily decisions not to turn to them. Lord, if there's anyone here that's not a believer, I pray that they would understand that they can have the joy of eternal life and a freedom, Lord, of walking with you and that you would draw them to your Son, Jesus Christ, through the cross on which he died. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.